and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. For those listening to this around the time it's posted, welcome to 2017. This episode is being released on the first day of the new year. I promise we'll be getting back to the life of Harrison with the next episode, but I thought I'd take the opportunity to do one more holiday-themed episode. Just to give you an idea of how this episode will go, we're going to start by looking at how the new year was celebrated in early America, then transition to discussing New Year celebrations hosted by the early presidents and how those traditions continued following Harrison. With that said, let's get started. If you listened to last week's episode on Christmas in early America, then you'll know that New Year's was one of the very few holidays that was actually celebrated in the early days of our nation. Traditions varied based on geographic location, but overall it seems that New Year's has for a long time been seen as a time for socializing. According to Penny Reestad, quote, Dutch and English settlers had long welcomed it with great ceremony. In the week preceding New Year's in New York City, the rich dined with each other at elaborate dinner parties. On January 1st, etiquette required men to call on every family member, friend, and acquaintance, while women held open house. The custom charmed visitors in temporary residence, and they often carried it home with them. Naturally, in more rural areas, celebrations weren't quite as elaborate as they were in New York but the New York tradition played an important role in the development of the presidency. Students of American history will know that Washington, D.C. was not the first capital of the United States. When George Washington took up the reins of power in 1789, he traveled north to, you guessed it, New York City. As the old saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans. And thus, as 1789 turned into 1790, George Washington did as the other wealthy elites in the city and opened his doors to receive visitors. As was described by Martha Washington's biographer, Patricia Brady, quote, New Year's Day was a major holiday in New York, traditionally celebrated by the Dutch with a cake called New Year's Cookie and Cherry Bounce, rum or brandy sweetened and flavored with cherries. All the members of the government, foreign public characters, and all the respectable citizens came to pay the compliments of the season to the president. Since New Year's fell on Friday, Martha's drawing room, according to Abigail Adams, was as much crowded as a birth night at St. James, and with company as brilliantly dressed, diamonds and great hoops accepted. Though Washington and the Capitol would soon move to Philadelphia, he would carry the tradition with him, and because George Washington had done this, so too would his successors in the office carry forward with hosting the New Year's levy each year for just over a century and a quarter. The Adamses would be the first to host the New Year's reception at the White House at the beginning of 1801, and Adams, quote, continued the social forms Washington had established. In a black velvet suit, he stood near the Stuart portrait, where he would greet the well-wishers at the new national capital. Jefferson would break from much of the tradition established by Washington and Adams, But the New Year's Day levy, along with the reception on the 4th of July, would be two of the traditions which he would keep up during his presidency. A similar schedule would be kept for both, as described by White House historian William Seale as follows. Quote, On those days, Jefferson greeted the people while standing in the center of the elliptical saloon. They filed in to shake his hand and to offer and receive pleasantries. Crowds increased by the year. Tables were pushed against the walls of the state dining room and filled with bowls of punch and plates of sweets. The Marine Band, already the president's own, played in the hall. The reception in 1802 brought one of the more whimsical events in presidential history, as Baptist elder John Leland presented Jefferson with a, quote, mammoth 
block of cheese, reputed to have been created from the milk of 900 cows and which weighed 1,235 pounds. Those of you who watched the television series The West Wing may remember one episode in which this incident was referenced in the episode's plotline. As one can imagine, a mammoth block of cheese would take a while to consume. As described by Jefferson scholar Dumas Malone, many folks, quote, viewed the mammoth cheese on that New Year's Day and the next one, by which time some 60 pounds have been removed from the middle because of symptoms of decay. What finally happened to it is uncertain. Some said that the last of it was served at a presidential reception in 1805, others that it was dumped into the Potomac. The 1806 reception was marked with numerous atypical visitors. Both a delegation of Native American chiefs and an ambassador from Tunis had arrived in Washington, D.C. at the same time and were causing quite a stir in Washington. All were invited to the New Year's reception, and as so much attention was being lavished on the new visitors, the British minister felt that he was being slighted and left the reception after five minutes. It should be noted that this was not the first time that the British minister had felt slighted by the Jefferson administration, so for him, the behavior was not atypical. When the Madisons moved into the White House, they had both the state dining room and the oval drawing room renovated in time for the 1810 reception. Though Dolly Madison worked to create a social environment in Washington, James Madison had no problem with using public functions for official business, such as at the New Year's reception in 1812, when he took the opportunity to speak to French minister Surrier to warn him that the U.S. would not take kindly to continued attacks by French forces on American ships. A couple of years later, the White House would go silent with public functions, as it was burned by the British in 1814. However, the New Year's reception of 1818, hosted by Madison's successor James Monroe and his wife Elizabeth, would mark the grand reopening of the White House to the public. As described by Monroe biographer Harlow Giles Unger, quote, Except for the four years after the British assault on Washington, the annual New Year's Day reception at the Presidential Palace had always been a massive affair that launched the Capitol's social season. Because of Elizabeth's excruciating headaches and rheumatism, however, and her distaste for unruly mob scenes, Monroe adhered to international protocol and admitted only the diplomatic corps when he opened the doors of the White House at 1130 on the morning of January 1st, 1818. He admitted the public at noon and ordered servants to remove the food and drink at 3 p.m., at which time he and Elizabeth vanished into their private quarters. The guests quickly intuited that the time had come to leave. The Marine Band, playing for the first time, all but smothered conversation for a good part of the reception, and soldiers stood at the door enforcing standards of dress to such high standards that only congressmen, department heads, and high-level officials gained entry. Once inside, festivities were sedate indeed, compared to those of Jefferson, who dressed like a frontiersman and let drunken guests sleep off their liquor on the floor. The Monroes stood with daughter Eliza, greeting guests in stately, almost monarchic fashion, dignified, extremely courteous, but reserved, with only a few short greetings and good wishes for the new year, before turning to the next guest. Naturally, the White House had required redecorating following the Reconstruction, and Unger goes on to describe how Elizabeth, quote, had decorated several rooms of the White House with the stately Louis XVI furniture they had brought from France during Monroe's diplomatic missions to that nation. The Monroes would continue the tradition of the New Year's reception in much the same manner up through their last one in the White House in 1825, 
with that reception being described by an attendee as follows. Quote, Mr. Monroe was standing near the door, and as we were introduced, we had the honor of shaking hands with him and passing the usual congratulations of the season. His manner was quiet and dignified. Mrs. Monroe's manner is very gracious, and she is a regal-looking lady. Though no longer young, she is still a very handsome woman. All the lower rooms were opened, and warmed by the great fires of hickory wood in the large open fireplaces, and with the handsome brass andirons and fenders. Wine was handed about in wine glasses on large silver slavers by colored waiters, dressed in dark livery, gilt buttons, etc. I suppose some of them must have come from Mr. Monroe's old family seat, Oak Hill, Virginia. A little historian side note here to confirm that, yes, likely many of the domestic staff at the White House during Monroe's tenure, as it was during the presidencies of the slave-owning presidents, were in fact slaves owned by the president. For slave-holding presidents, it was cheaper for them to bring their own slaves than to hire domestic staff at a time when the government did not provide for a staff for the House. It's too large of a subject to go into on this episode, but for more about enslaved peoples at the White House, I would recommend Jesse Holland's The Invisibles, The Untold Story of African American Slaves in the White House. Following Monroe, John Quincy Adams took up residency in the White House and continued many of the social traditions of his predecessors, including the New Year's Levy. As described by JQA biographer Samuel Flagg Demis, quote, Grand gala day for the people and the people's servants in the people's palace, i.e. the White House, was the New Year's drawing room or general reception. On that day, between noon and three o'clock in the afternoon, the president received everybody, high and low, friend and foe, who wished to offer the compliments of the season, if not good wishes for the coming year. So great was the crowd on New Year's Day that all available space on the ground or public floor of the White House had to be thrown open, including the still unfurnished East Room. John Quincy Adams estimated that he saw between two and 3,000 people at his first reception on New Year's Day 1826, about 1,200 to open the year 1827. Our last New Year's drawing room, he noted at the close of his administration on January 1st, 1829, was crowded beyond all previous example and passed quietly off. Indeed, the crowds became such an issue that some of the diplomatic corps took offense. As described by Bemis, quote, the press of people got to be so bothersome that one year the French and Russian ministers took exception to having to push their way through a vulgar crowd to present themselves to the president and Mrs. Adams. When they stayed away for this reason, or remonstrated, John Quincy Adams told them to come early at noon, before the crowd, or late at three o'clock when the assembly had thinned out. Then they wouldn't have any trouble. Surprisingly, for someone known to have entertained quite often, Indeed, to the point that he was nearly bankrupt by the time he left the White House, there is little that I've been able to find about Andrew Jackson's New Year's receptions. However, in general, his, quote, levies were so large that some people neither saw the president nor got a glass of punch. To be a guest at these events required no invitation. One never knew who might appear. It was a time of colorful frontier characters, and such figures as Davy Crockett and Sam Houston were as likely as not to turn up shaking hands. It could be that, as his social functions were so frequent, the New Year's event didn't stand out any more or less than any other levies during his tenure. We get our only glimpse of the New Year's reception in the Jackson White House from future President Franklin Pierce's wife, 
When Jane Pierce met Andrew Jackson at his New Year's levee in 1835, she described, quote, his grandchildren playing at his feet as Jackson greeted his guest, and spoke of Jackson as, quote, mild and chastened, a venerable and fine-looking old man. As just mentioned, the Jackson era was full of raucous celebrations and colorful characters, and at times, New Year's celebrations in early America could be taken to excess. A German businessman described his experience in spending New Year's of 1839 in Texas, quote, wallowing on the buffalo skin, sunk in melancholic reveries, until the evening livened up when the, quote, watchword for the evening became whiskey. On that same New Year's Day, Angelica Van Buren, at the age of 22 and following her marriage to President Van Buren's son, Abraham, was taking up her duties as White House hostess at the annual New Year's reception. Thankfully, she was seen as having a warm personality, as Van Buren was described at his annual public receptions as, quote, visibly uncomfortable, hardly concealing his dislike of the crowds that packed the state rooms. They pushed and shoved and wrung his hand over and over again as he stood in the blue room. Hoping to hurry the process, the president ordered that no food or drink be served. The callers hated him for this, being accustomed to whiskey punch, tea, coffee, and wine, not to mention sometimes ice cream, cakes, and oranges. Naturally, as listeners to the Harrison podcast know by now, Harrison did not survive to host his first New Year's reception. But the tradition kept on through the 19th century until 1898, when, for the first time since Washington's first reception in 1790, it was canceled on account of it falling within the official mourning period for President William McKinley's late mother. It would return to the Washington social calendar after, only to then be interrupted by world events when President Wilson canceled the 1918 reception due to World War I. Social life at the White House ground to a halt after Wilson's stroke, so the traditional New Year's reception was not restored until the tenure of his successor, Warren G. Harding. However, in a sign of just how tenuous this tradition was hanging on, his successor, Calvin Coolidge, canceled his final New Year's reception at the White House in 1929, not because of a death in the family or a serious illness or a world war, but rather because he wanted to spend New Year's in Florida. Just a note here. Coolidge was also the president whose presidency was commemorated by a contemporary journalist with the following, quote, His chief feat during five years and seven months in office was to sleep more than any other president. Though close, Coolidge's legacy would not include putting the final nail in the coffin of the White House New Year's levy. That honor would go to Coolidge's successor, Herbert Hoover. Hoover did revive the tradition for his first New Year's in 1930, and would carry it through the majority of his presidency, despite the nation's suffering in the midst of the Great Depression. But after his overwhelming loss to Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1932, Hoover had had enough, and followed the president of Coolidge rather than Washington, and hightailed it down to Florida for New Year's 1933. FDR did not revive the practice, nor have any of his successors. And thus, the presidential New Year's reception is a tale of days gone by. Now, we think more about the Big Apple than the White House when the year draws to a close. But as those who came before us did, we continue to hope that the new year will bring peace, love, and prosperity for ourselves and for all. I make that wish for each of you, and look forward to a new year ahead of historical exploration. On a personal note, I want to say thank you 
to all of you who have listened to the show thus far. Whether you've listened from the beginning or are just discovering this podcast, I'm very thankful for all of you and grateful and appreciative that you choose to spend a few minutes of your time listening to me talk about history. I've always been fascinated by learning about others, and that's what history is for me. Learning about other folks that are no longer with us and understanding how their story and our story relate. I've always wanted to share this passion with others, so I'm glad that you've allowed me to share it with you. Our next episode brings us back to General Harrison and his life as he sets off on a grand new adventure to, well, I've kept you in suspense for two weeks already, so what's one week more? Join me and the General for our next episode in our journey to a mysterious new destination. Until then, if you'd like to contact me with questions, comments, or complaints for the three weeks of suspense, please feel free to reach out to me by email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. Show notes and past episodes can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And the podcast is also on iTunes and Stitcher if you're not listening from there already. Happy New Year to all, and take care. Until next time.